This faith and finance podcast is underwritten in part by Christian Healthcare Ministries. Are you finding it increasingly challenging to find affordable health care? Christian Healthcare Ministries is a budget-friendly, biblical, and compassionate healthcare cost-sharing alternative that aligns with your Christian values. And it's available in all 50 states and around the world. Learn more at chministries.org slash faithby. And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Luke twelve fifteen. I am Rob West. Covetousness doesn't get enough pulpit time these days. Pastors would do well to preach more about this sin that infects today's society. I'll talk about how you can combat covetousness with God's wisdom today, and then it's on to your calls at 800 525 That's 800 525 This is Faith and Finance, biblical wisdom for your financial journey. Okay, first, a definition. Covetousness is a sinful desire for things. It's often confused with envy, which is actually directed toward another person and leads to covetousness when you want what they have. I make this distinction because the Bible makes it by giving covetousness a special place, forbidding it in the Tenth Commandment. Envy is bad. It's a sin. But covetousness is even more dangerous to your soul. And why is that? Well, Paul gives us the answer in Colossians 3.5. It reads, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. When you covet something, you make it an idol, putting it before God. This, of course, points back to the first two commandments. In Deuteronomy 5, we find, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And that's followed by, you shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Now you see the danger, that covetousness is an emotion that drives idolatry, and it's nothing short of a plague in today's society. Through the media and advertising, we're bombarded daily with the images of things, many of which we can't afford, a bigger house, a newer car, or a skiing vacation in Vail. Covetousness is sometimes called the mother of sin because it leads to so many others, like greed, envy, hate, and even murder. There are special warnings when money itself becomes an idol. Jesus says in Matthew 6:24, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And in 1 Timothy 6:10, Paul writes, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. God gave the sin of covetousness a special place in the Ten Commandments because he had to. As Paul relates in Romans 7, that without the law, he wouldn't have known that he was covetous. That's because our sin nature prevents us from seeing our greed, lust, and materialism. So how do you know if you've fallen victim to covetousness? First, by praying that God would reveal this sin in your heart. James 1.5 tells us, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. 
Second, by searching God's Word for the truth about covetousness and how it may be affecting your life. Second Timothy three sixteen and 17 reads, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And third, by asking yourself some difficult questions and answering them honestly. Does God hold preeminence in your life? Have you placed other gods before him? You would never worship a golden calf, but what about your favorite sports team or your TV or even your spouse or children? Have you placed those things before God? Have you sought after earthly things instead of the kingdom of heaven? Jesus says in Matthew 6.10, Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. And in Luke 12.15, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So, pray for wisdom, study God's word, and guard your heart. That's how you combat covetousness. But as you do those things, keep in mind that money and possessions themselves are not evil. It's not a sin to have wealth, nor is it more holy to be poor. It's only when we put possessions above the God that gives them to us that we fall into the trap of covetousness. I hope that's an encouragement to you today. All right, your calls are next, 800-525-7000. That's 800-525-7000. I'm Rob West, and you're listening to Faith and Finance, biblical wisdom for your financial decisions. Stick around. We'll be right back. Absolutely free. We know you've learned to be suspicious of those words, but really, you can get biblical financial wisdom delivered to your inbox each week absolutely free. Articles, videos, podcasts, and special offers on biblical resources. Nearly 60,000 people receive our free weekly wisdom email, and you can too. Create your free FaithFi account by going to faithfi.com and click sign up to begin receiving weekly wisdom in your inbox. We are grateful for support from LightPoint Portfolios, which seeks out family and faith-friendly investments for 401k and 403b plans, integrating faith values and fiduciary duty. LightPoint Portfolios offers retirement plans for a variety of organizations such as businesses, nonprofits, and churches. And we're grateful for their sponsorship of the Faith and Finance Program. More information is available at lightpointportfolios.com. Welcome back to Faith and Finance. I'm your host, Rob West. The number to call is 800-525-7000. All right, to the phones we go. We're going to begin today in Zealand, Michigan. Hey, Brian, how can I help you? You often speak about uh, having three to six months living expenses for a family. Just wondering and curious what your thoughts were for a, a church. What Should there be any reserve for a church to yeah. have? Yeah, there absolutely should be. And um, the Evangelical Council for Financial Accountability has a great article on this that I would check out to do some reading on. Uh, If you just Google ECFA, that stands for Evangelical Council for Financial Accountability, and the uh, article is called Church Cash Reserves, How Much is Enough? 
And I think that'd be some great reading for you. Uh, basically, they make the case, and I would agree, that uh, cash reserves are a critical part of faithful administration of church resources. We build them in good times. We uh, lean on them in leaner times. And it should be uh, a line item in the budget, additions to cash reserves. But there really should be a philosophy, a cash reserve target or goal that the church adopts as a part of its policies. And so uh, this would be, you know, beyond, uh, you know, designated gifts and debt service targets. This would be for the operations of the church in the event of income, you know, uh, disruption of gifts or some unforeseen event. You know, typically I would say that, you know, would be um, somewhere around six months. Uh, They will make the case in the article that no reserves is inadequate. Uh, Anything greater than 12 uh, 12 months, they would say, is excessive because, keep in mind, the whole purpose of the gifts to the church is to be used for the church to do the ministry that it's called to do. And so we don't want to build up a lot of excess cash. I certainly don't advocate taking gifts from church members uh, coming into the congregation and investing those. We want to be investing them in the kingdom by uh, doing the work of the church. But it's prudent to have some sort of reserve amount uh, between nothing and 12 months. And I think most folks end up landing in that three to six months range as an appropriate amount. But there needs to be a process that uh, the finance committee alongside the pastor and the church leadership go through to establish kind of that cap and that floor for those operating reserves. I would say communicate that to the church. Um, Again, it's not a matter of demonstrating a a lack of faith, but it just uh, reflects a tentativeness uh, to good stewardship. And the same applies to a church as would, uh, you know, an individual or a family managing God's money as well. Is that helpful? Yes, very much so. Okay, great. Yeah, check out that article again. Just Google uh, ECFA and uh, Church Cash Reserves. How much is enough? I think it'll be some great reading for you. Thanks for your call, Brian. Uh, To West Palm Beach. Hi, Stan. Thanks for your patience. Go ahead, sir. I'm a second career minister. And so um, at this point, uh, I'm not uh, looking to leave any inheritance. I have no children. I have some charitable interests. But I'm I'm trying to figure out how so what's the best way to actually distribute assets to myself. Yeah. Where are your assets located? Where where are you positioned? Uh I'm a little bit everywhere. I have some in some homes. I own a few homes that are completely paid off. Uh so probably I don't know, seven hundred thousand dollars worth of homes. I have half a million in uh deferreds. Um and then another half a million or so and just liquid assets, cash. Yeah, great. All right. So, I mean, I think the key here is just to be wise in the tax efficiency of your giving, because if you really don't want to leave a whole lot behind, and, you know, as Ron Blue says, do your giving while you're living so you're knowing where it's going. And I love that idea, which is let's prioritize current giving over giving at death out of my estate. He says tongue in cheek. I'm not sure you get credit for it when you give it that way. Uh, He's joking when he says, 
does that. But the idea, I think, is a good one, and that is why not right now participate in God's activity and join him where he's at work and do some hilarious giving. And if you could do that in a tax-efficient way, that makes a lot of sense, especially since, as you said, you don't have a lot of desires to have a whole lot left. If you could spend that last pity on the day the Lord calls you home, that would be ideal. Now, because we don't know the time and the place, so we probably going to be difficult to do that. But I think, you know, in in all seriousness, spending some time perhaps with an advisor, unless you already know this, quantifying enough, how much is enough to maintain your lifestyle for the rest of your life, given the assets and the income sources that you'll have, and then getting serious about once you define enough for lifestyle and accumulation, and you may already be there, determining how much you could begin giving away. Now, a couple of options for you in terms of just charitable desires, um, you know, if you were to liquidate any of those properties, giving all or a portion of those properties uh, to a donor-advised fund, uh, perhaps at the National Christian Foundation prior to the sale would be really helpful because you wouldn't have any capital gains on at least that portion that was given to your donor-advised fund. And then when it's liquidated, 100% of whatever percentage of the uh, property you put into your donor-advised fund upon the sale would fund that DAF, and then you'd be able to use that as a charitable checking account to give it away as the Lord leads. Uh, you could do something similar with those four or three Bs when you separate from the company if you haven't already by rolling them to an IRA, and then you can do what's called a qualified charitable distribution once you reach age 70 and a half. And I realize that may be down the road a bit, but once you do, you could give up to $100,000 uh, you know, a year uh, directly to a ministry without uh, having to pull any of that out on a taxable basis. And that would also satisfy your required minimum, which is now it's, it's set at age 73. Obviously, the money you have that's taxable, that's liquid in cash, you know, that could be um, uh, taken care of right away. You mentioned a charitable trust, and, uh, you know, that is obviously where you can receive income from the distribution of the non-income producing assets you place in the trust, and then you receive the charitable donation on the present value of the remainder of the assets, and then at the end of the term or death, your chosen ministry receives the rest of the assets. That can be a great way uh, to kind of keep, you know, an income stream coming to you, but ensure that it's, you know, given away at death. So I think those are a few options, but give me your thoughts on what I've shared, and is there anything else that I didn't mention that you're wondering about? Uh, Well, it was kind of news to me that a donor-advised fund, I always anticipated just cash into a donor-advised fund. I had never anticipated perhaps some of the real estate actually to go. I could see that in a trust, but I didn't know about that in a donor-advised Yeah, fund. here's the thing with the donor-advised fund is that, you know, m- the most powerful aspect of the donor-advised fund is for non-cash giving. Uh, you know, I mean, you can put money in a donor-advised fund, just cash, and the only reason you'd tend to want to do that is if you wanted to do some what's called bunching, where let's say you're sitting on assets like you are, and you're not getting above the standard deduction, so you could put in a couple of years' worth of giving or more, at one time, get the deduction for that full amount because now you're up above the standard deduction and then give it away over a couple of years if you wanted to. Uh, So that is the strategy. But the real power of the DAF is you can put in a business interest, you could put in real estate, you could put in a piece of art, you could put in a farm, you could put in stocks and bonds. So, you know, Giving before you sell rather than selling and giving is a really effective way because you basically eliminate the taxes. Right, right. And now, one other scenario is because I am a, a minister, 
uh, some uh, looking at receiving certain income as uh, housing allowance. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and and so that's a whole other thing. Let's do this. I've got to take a quick break. I'd be delighted to talk to you about the housing allowance just on the other side if you're able to hold. If not, uh, I can uh, direct you to an article. But thanks for your call today. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Hey, Greg, I need some advice. Oh, what's up? I'm really struggling with finding ways to cut back. With costs going up, especially in healthcare, what do you guys do? Oh, uh, we use CHM, Christian Healthcare Ministries. It's a health cost sharing ministry that's been sharing members' eligible medical bills for over 40 years. Sure helped us stick to our budget. Hmm. Uh, here's the website chministries.org. C-A-C-H-Ministries.org. We are grateful for support from Sound Mind Investing in the Faith and Finance Program. If you have money in a retirement account or just a general investing account, you know the stock market can sometimes seem like a roller coaster. But it is possible to enjoy both profit and peace of mind in investing, no matter what's happening in the market. You can see a short video webinar on that topic at soundmindinvesting.org. Since 1990, Sound Mind Investing has sought to offer financial wisdom for living well. Soundmindinvesting.org. Welcome back. This is Faith and Finance. I'm Rob West. We're taking your calls today, 800-525-7000. That's 800-525-7000. By the way, you don't have to call. Just send an email, askrob at faithfi.com. That's askrob at faith, the letters F-I dot com. Uh, to Grand Rapids. Hey, Matt, go right ahead, sir. Hi, Rob. Long-time listener. Just seeing if it's still a good time to buy the I-bonds. Yeah, it's a it's a great question. I think it really depends upon what bucket of money we're talking about. And here's what I mean by that. If we were to put uh, our cash in various buckets based on the time horizon, and then we would assign an investment strategy and risk, uh, con, you know, commensurate risk to each of those buckets, that would help us determine whether I-bonds make sense. So not to overcomplicate it, but uh, for that money that you need immediately available, I would call that your emergency fund doesn't qualify for I-bonds because I-bonds have a minimum uh, duration of one year. You can't touch it for 12 months. So I would eliminate that bucket. Let's jump over the next bucket, which would be maybe a one to three year time horizon and say money that I have that I can invest for, you know, pretty much three years plus, certainly five years plus, I think you're better off not going into the I-bonds because I'd rather you take advantage of the stock market that's down, uh, take advantage of the long-term appreciation. And I think the attractiveness of the I-bond rates right now, paying 6.82%, is going to taper off over time uh, because the Fed is laser focused on getting that inflation target back down toward 2% uh, where they like it to be. Now, that's not going to be easy. And the question is, how much pain are they going to allow the economy to endure in that effort? But they're focused on it. So I think we need to assume they're, they can't get to it. They're going to try to get close. And that means that these I-bonds, which have not been attractive in the past, are probably not going to be terribly attractive in the future. I'm thinking a couple of years down the road. But in the meantime, if you have money that you want high safety on, and these certainly qualify because they're U.S. government backed and guaranteed, 
and you want an attractive rate of return right now, 6.82%. If you were to buy them tomorrow, you'd get six months at that rate. It would then adjust to the new rate, which we'll know in May, which is pegged to the consumer price index. So at least for the next year, I would say you're going to get a fairly attractive rate. The question is, how long will that continue? And would it be better to take advantage of something like a, uh, you know, a CD where you could get, you know, five plus percent, uh, you know, and you could lock that up for, you know, two years, three years, five years, something like that. But if you want to just take 10,000, you want it to be safe and you're saying, listen, I'm, I'm fine if this is really only attractive for a couple of years and then I'd pull it out, you know, I'd be fine with that. Uh, give me your thoughts, though. Yeah, I think that sounds good. You know, I want like a long-term thing. I'm in no, yeah. you know, brush. So yeah, that would be great. Thanks so much. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think the key here is, I mean, these are 20-year bonds with a 10-year extension. So they're 30 years. The question is just how attractive are they going to be in the future? The good news is you'll know that because they're pegged to inflation, if we're entering a season where inflation is going to be elevated, uh, you know, for quite some time into the future, well, at least you'll know that this money is offsetting the effects of that because that's really why they were what they were designed to do. And so I think from that standpoint, it it does make some sense as long as you have the right time horizon on it and you understand kind of how it it, it, to approach it. Uh, The way you would put uh, 10,000, which is what you can put in, in one calendar year in to buy the electronic bonds is just open an account, Matt, at Treasury Direct. Dot gov. That's treasurydirect.gov. And then uh, once you open your account, you can transfer the money in from a uh, an account that you would link to it, and then you would purchase the bonds. Um, you can do up to 10000 The only way to get beyond that, you can get an additional 5000 in paper I-bonds uh, through a tax refund only. Um, so if you haven't filed your tax return yet and you wanted to take advantage of directing some of your refund into I-bonds, you could go above the 10000 up to fifteen total for the calendar year. Thanks for calling today. Uh, let's head south to Florida. Hi, Meredith. How can I help you? Um, my question is about a self-directed IRA. Yeah. I have like a, a Roth IRA for about 65000 And then I have a traditional IRA of like 40000 And I was told that I can uh, buy a property or invest a property using, my, using a self-directed IRA. So I just want to know how do I go about that? Yes. So you absolutely can. And what you would have to find is you'd have to find a self-directed IRA custodian. Uh, the custodian is the, uh, you know, the brokerage firm or the organization that is custody, taking custody of the assets. And as, because a self-directed IRA is a little different than a typical IRA because it allows you to invest in really any type of investment and most notably alternative investments like real estate or precious metals or private loans or, you know, things like that. Um, you'd you'd want to find an, a custodian that really specializes in self-directed IRAs. Uh, they'll typically charge some extra fees for that. Could be anywhere from you know, depending on the account size and what you're investing in, 150 to more than a couple of thousand dollars annually because they have to administer that. But once it's set up, um, then you absolutely could take the money in the self-directed IRA and invest it in real estate, either through direct ownership or a pool type investment. So the, I think your next step 
is to find um, a, a self-directed IRA custodian. And I'd probably just do a search on the web to see which are the most highly rated and just read a lot about them and uh, find out the ones that um, you know are getting the highest ratings out there. Um, and then once you open the account, they'll help you. Their job is really to help you get it set up and uh, walk you through all of the steps uh, in uh, funding it and then also making the real estate purchase. All right? All right. Thank you so okay. much. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks. Thank you, Meredith. Thanks for calling today. God bless you. Uh, quickly to Florida. Hey, Caitlin, go right ahead. My question is, I'm just turned 30 and I don't have much savings. I have a normal um, nine to five job getting paid average salary. Um, I'm just wondering, son, how to go about starting to invest for my future. Do you have any um, emergency savings that you would fall back on if you had an unexpected expense? I do, yeah. Okay, yeah. So my goal there is three to six months expenses. I'd start there and try to build that up. But once you have that, then I think for the longer term, do you have a retirement plan at work available to you? I just started, so it's not very much. Well, I would say that that's really the best option for you. Do they do any matching? Do you know, Caitlin? Yeah, they do. Okay, great. Yeah, so that's free money. So your goal is going to be to get that up to 10 to 15% of your pay and just have that come right out of your your paycheck through salary deferral, get it in there, put it in some good growth mutual funds. In your 30s, I mean, you have maybe 30 more years before retirement. That's a long time. And so if you can get this money going into your 401k, get the deduction and just let it grow at 10 to 15% of your pay plus your emergency fund, you'll be well on your way. Stay on the line. I'll talk a bit more and I want to send you a gift. We appreciate your call today very, very much. And that's going to do it for this edition of the program. I hope you'll make plans to join us again next time for another edition of Faith and Finance. Faith and Finance is provided by FaithFi and listeners like you.